please pronounce your name correctly for me? My name is Steinun. Uh, my full name is Steinun Vidar Sigurdardottir, which sounds awfully long. But um, you pronounce Steinun like the word stay, nun. And all Icelandic names have a meaning. And this one means, um, and it comes from poetry, a stone in a wave, right where the beach hits the, the, um, the, the ocean. It's one of my favorite places on earth. Like, I've often had conversations with people about like, you like you love the ocean yeah. and you love the beach, but really the thing you love the is point the, where is they the, meet. That's right, the yeah, point where yeah. they meet. Like yeah. that's the beautiful place. Yeah. And unnur is used in Icelandic poetry, so it kind of means that a stone in unnur, which kind of, and it kind of goes gently back and forth and back and forth. <laughs> you you kind of make me sad about my name. Like your name sounds so damn poetic in comparison to mine. I'm Icelandic. I've lived in, uh, um, I, I was educated uh, across the Atlantic on both sides, both in Europe and in the United States. Uh, why am I on your show? Um, uh, it, the reason being is uh, I am a fashion designer and I've made a career out of knitting. And um, my career um, across the Atlantic was based on that. I went to school in New York City, started working there, and then moved on to Europe. And little did I know that the home craft that was taught to me by my grandmother when I was nine years old would lead me to working for big fashion names, and being my, the core of my own business and making art out of it. So it's been a path, a long and beautiful path. Um, and before we started, you were talking about mistakes. And one of the... I'm all about mistakes. Um, and one of the great things about knitting is that when you do mistakes in knitting, they turn out to be so beautiful. And this is what I really learned going to factories, is that you pick up something from the floor because it was a mistake, and you go upside down, turn it around. Oh, that's nice. And that's where you got some of your biggest, best ideas. I'm sure those factory people hated you for that. <laughs> Because they're like, no, those are mistakes over there. Those are not what we do. I think because in knitting, uh, you buy the yarn as thread. Mm -hmm. You are the creator of the cloth. And sometimes you need an inspiration to create new cloth. Because when you are a woven designer, you buy the fabric already made for you. And it's up to you to create what comes out of it. But there's an extra step when it comes to knitting. I buy the thread and I create the cloth and then I work it out, what, what I'm going to make out of it. 
And that's the beauty of being a knitwear designer. And I've always said, I, I have no idea how to knit by a knitting book. Absolutely no idea. Is that a thing to know how to knit by a knitting book? Yeah, most people learn that way. Okay. Uh, my grandmother didn't teach me that way. But I can knit anything in the world uh, when I see it. I just need a picture of it. But that's not what I'm interested in. I'm interested in creating new. Mm -hmm. And knitting is um, knitting's put together by six six ways, six steps. And if you know those steps, it's easy to create whatever you want out of them. Just to be clear for the listeners, I'm giving a very blank expression because I do not know these six steps. <laughs> okay. Uh, um, there's cast on, uh, which means how you put the stitches on. Um, okay. Then you do knit in pearl. How do you knit I've the heard front that. and the back? Yes, my mother has done that. Yeah. And then there's increase and decrease. Okay. And cast off when you finish the stitches. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, and yeah. if you know those steps, it the combinations are endless. It's fascinating because like this, the way you're talking about this, it's like it's almost like a painter saying like I can make any pigment I want f from scratch, but I choose to buy it from a tube. Like you're talking about other yeah. other fashion designers who basically buy a roll of a fabric pre-made kind of thing i'm a big fan of like make like my father does uh icon writing yeah and he actually at one point in his career ground his own pigment and made his own you know his own gouache and everything like this and so i'm a huge fan of like if you're going to use a material you should go as far back on that material as possible to have as much control and as much input and everything on the entire process all the way up rather than sort of just buying it from a store oh absolutely that's the beauty of knitting and i actually think that if people would get out of the concept of buying a knitting book and if they know these steps, they can create masterpieces. There is that like weird fear of, of like going that, that step that you're talking about right there, like that step of like getting beyond and then sort of doing it on your own for yourself versus following somebody else's instructions, guidelines, stuff like this. It's a very uh, daunting uh, choice to make. And not for me. Uh, and the reason being... Um, Obviously. Yeah, uh, uh, because in fashion design, I use knitting as my um, media to work with. And I've been to so many factories uh, during my career and good ones and all kinds of factories. And and I produce, uh, I would say, 95% of my product in my own store is knitting. But then you take that when you know that, when you know all the the downs and the beauties and what each material does for you, for instance, linen has no uh, elasticity. So there's there's way if you know those things, you wanna take it all a step forward because it becomes kind of, well, been there, done that. Let's move on and create something new. 
I'm a huge fan of that. Like this is something my teachers used to tell me when I was in school, which was always like, know the history, know the techniques, know the mediums. And then they, they refer to the term they used to was stand on the shoulders of the giants. There you go. Yeah. You know, so like take their thing and then add something new of your own life experience, whatever insight. So I started giving these workshops on knitting. It started all with that. I wanted to teach people these basic six things without the needles. So I wanted people to knit with their fingers because then you really get into, and it's just a small little swatch so you can, Mm -hmm. but you learn what the knitting part is all about. And then I moved it onto their hands. And the engineering part became very obvious when you do that. And I remember as a child knitting, you know, at home, and there's a kind of a meditation with it when the knitting, you know, you do the needles and there's a meditation and your body starts going with it. And it became a workshop where I was teaching people how to knit with drumbeat. Because that's the rhythm. And I've given those workshops in Kennedy Arts Center, in Nuke, uh, uh, which I, I considered one of the most amazing workshops, mm-hmm. only because I had a drummer. It was almost uh, being from uh, shamatic. It was uh, the way he was drumming. It was unbelievable. And everybody in the audience just became quiet. And it was amazing. And then I gave a workshop here in, in the Nordic house here in Reykjavik. And I had the two best drummers in Iceland drumming for almost two hours while I had people standing on tables knitting with their hands and knitting with lights. And it became this beautiful pieces of artwork that we ha- hung, um, put all on display in Harpa, uh, the, um, the music hall here and and those are things that I just think are so wonderful and in Scotland in Aberdeen I had uh, almost like a a band of young young, um, artists and musicians and we were all knitting and it ended up being put up in the garden with all the lights in the winter time and it was so beautiful and then I started taking this kind of knitting form a little further because in it, when you knit this big, it becomes almost like a house. I wanted to cover a house in it and I wanted to, with all the lights and everything. So I gave a workshop uh, in an architectural department in uh, Spain and it became so successful that the fact that they created, because uh, in Spain there's a lot of sun, so they created this um, in the hallway of the, the courtyard of the, uh, the university. They put a knitting, knitted uh, piece yeah, over shade, it. Shade, an umbrella shade, kind of thing. Yes, yeah. and it, 
it was so huge. <laughs> that sounds quite large, yes. It was fantastic. And um, I, I, I love the photographs that I have of it. So knitting is not just for me, just a piece of knitted sweater or knitted. It becomes a media to work with. This is interesting. So, okay, because we're also sitting in your, would you call this a retail store, a studio? What do you call I, this place? I call it a studio because studio. my, yeah, my office is here, my books are here, my store is here. You have a vast range of experiences. So, like, I, I mean, I'm sitting here and I'm looking at your wall of your large format Polaroid photographs, stuff that you've done with uh, Mary Ellen Mark. Uh, your work itself and you're now also bringing in parts that I was personally unaware of which is the sort of almost installation performative pieces that you have additionally created you how have I not heard of you before I tend to be very quiet you don't strike me as a quiet person <laughs> I tend to uh, yeah I hardly ever give interviews well, I'm honored. But podcasts are good, I find. I think it's a way of you actually coming across the way you are instead of people writing. Because sometimes what you say is not being translated into something. Tone, of, tone of voice, inflections. like. Thank you. Yeah, I, I mean, I can't tell you how many interviews I've read yeah. where like, they might have said something sarcastic or there might should have been a laugh after it or something yeah. like that that like you can't read. But I love the podcast because you sort of understand the person's personality a little bit more. So, yeah, I love it. Well, that's why that's why I accept it. Yeah, when you walked in, it was kind of into. Oh, he does podcast. Well, great. <laughs> it's it's great fun to get to know people, and also, as I said, like to put a put a personality yeah. behind whatever sort of serious artistic endeavor they do, kind of thing. Because oftentimes we think everybody's deeply intellectual and ponderous and smoking cigarettes and drinking coffee at the cafe and all this. But like a lot of people have like great sides to their personality that unfortunately don't come across in like their artist statements or their you know, any, you know written interviews and such. So yeah. Talk about Mary Ellen. Yes. Um, there's a wonderful story uh, behind our uh, the, the time I met Mary Ellen. I want to know what I Mary Ellen Mark is, you know, one of the f first photographers I ever saw. My parents had one of her books, I believe it was China, yeah, on our coffee table yeah. as I was a child. So, like, I was constantly exposed to her work literally every time I went to the coffee table. Oh my god, so like the, to, to find somebody who knew her and worked with her, I'm just sort of like, do tell stories, <laughs> yes. It was actually, um, uh, one of her assistants in New York City. She called him Afe. Was Icelandic. Oh, okay. And he was working at the morning paper uh, when he moved back home. And he got her to come uh, and photograph uh, uh, children in the school for the disabled. And my son is disabled. And uh, I remember getting a piece of paper that allowed him to be photographed. You know, I signed off on that and thinking, oh, this is good. He loves being photographed. <laughs> And um, sure enough, the day came. Day came, and I 
I honestly, I don't remember it because it was just something, one of the many things I did with my son. And the next day, there, uh, a school teacher that came to my store, and with her was this uh, American woman. And I can hear immediately when she speaks English that she's American. And being in New York for 13 years, I go, where are you from? <laughs> you know, it's the standard question, you know, when you hear American, which city are you from? <laughs> and she says, New York. And I go, wow, I lived there for 13 years. And, you know, we started chatting, you know. And she was lovely, just lovely. And I go, what are you doing here? And she goes, well, I was photographing these kids here. And I go, oh, really? Yeah. And I photographed this lovely boy. And I go, which school were you at? And she goes, yeah. And she gave the name of the school. And I go, my son goes there. And I go, did you meet my son? Which, which, which year were you photographing? And she goes, yeah, I was photographing this boy named Alexander. And I go, uh, does he look like this? And I pulled up a photograph of him. And she goes, yeah, that's him. And I go, that's my son. <laughs> now, what, what year was this? 2000 Four, five, two thousand and five. Just giving a little context. Yeah, and that's how we met. It was actually my son that actually introduced us, and we started chatting and about disability. And um, I have a lot to say about disability. And the the thing is that my son has taught me more than I have been able to teach him. And my son is undiagnosed, so you don't fall into any system or there's nothing that that grabs you there. You don't go to parent meeting, you know, with the same diseases. You, you are just kind of on your own. So me and my husband kind of raised our son just in a fun way, <laughs> in a way that he's... Yeah, he he was brought out uh, because he couldn't move, and we used a certain technique that we saw that he responded to, and somehow we did the work with him mm-hmm. and pushed everything we could. So my son is probably the happiest person I know. He's always happy. He's not taking any medicine. So he's, he's a healthy, young, disabled man today. And Mary Ellen was fascinated by this. And she wanted um, to uh, meet me when next time I came to New York. And I was like, not a problem. I'll definitely call you up when, you know, next time I go to New York. And then I uh, told my friend, uh, uh, she was the head of the National Museum about it. And she said, well, wouldn't it be wonderful to have an exhibition on children with disability because it's never been done? And I said, well, I'm going to New York. Do you want me to ask her? And my friend said, yes. yes. So I was the one. I got the honor of going to uh, New York and asked Mary Ellen if she wanted to do an exhibition on, on children with disability. 
called, and the exhibition was called Extraordinary Children. And she did, um, uh, or her husband, uh, Martin Bell, did a documentary on my son that you can actually see uh, uh, the film on her website, maryellenmark.com. And the exhibition opened in September 2007. And it, it opened doors. It, all of a sudden, all of these children were, they were visible. Famous, even. Well, let me put it to you this way. All the morning paper, papers had a photograph from the exhibition on the cover that morning. And it still gives me goosebumps. That's how visible they became. And the a documentary made an impact. It was such a beautiful documentary. And the exhibition, a lot of people came to see it. And uh, there was a book published and Mary Ellen kind of, uh, yeah, wrote about my son in the foreword, foreword because he's the one that kind of started this whole thing with being funny in the bus where she was photographing him. And he kept on peeking and smiling and being happy the way he is. And that's how the whole thing started. It's amazing because, like, uh, yeah just Mary Ellen Mark it's just sort of like okay I'm just sort of taking it in I'm like oh. and then she got to know my work and she told me about the Polaroid machine and the large format yeah so uh, like side note so for the viewers that can't see this she has this very extensive collection of large format Polaroids which when I say large format I believe 20 by 24 yes inches yes uh, which are all one of a kinds, and there there are only you said three of the these cameras cameras yeah. in the world, and they're massive. I mean, they're on like railroad tracks. These things are huge, and need three people to operate. Yes, and like some some artists that I admire greatly, like David Leventhal mm -hmm. and some others, use that same camera. But yeah. it's and like it's booked for years in advance. Like you have to like book sessions, and like each exposure is a couple hundred dollars yes like and so if you get your exposure wrong you just wasted a couple hundred dollars yes <laughs> like, I mean, so like you got one shot i mean it, and so like to have numerous of them is quite unique like i don't think i've ever seen anybody that has like probably more than one or two well i found the process so interesting so i wanted to uh because in my work, all my details and all my finishes and all my qualities are about this kind of rare, uh, specifically here in Iceland. So I found the process in the large format so interesting because it's time consuming. It, the product it doesn't look like anything else. So I wanted to actually do this. She actually, we photographed four uh, seasons together. So wait, just to be clear, Mary Ellen Mark took these Polaroids. Yes. Oh my gosh. Okay, fine. <laughs> just like, okay, just adding like almost insult to injury on the whole thing. Okay, great. Go on. Uh, okay. um, then I ha I ha there's actually, when you start looking at Mary Ellen Mark's photographs, I found such fashion in them because she photographs these young woman and uh 
I found there's there's somehow fashion in them, you know. Um, and I started collecting these uh, photographs from her that kind of, uh, as you can see on my wall, I have my own uh, large Polaroids here, and then photographs from Mary Ellen uh, with a with the young uh, girls, and they look amazing together. There's a, a an inspiration that fashion photography and just normal photography can work together and I honestly don't find that these are fashion photography I find them being more on the artistic side uh, much more than fashion photography and there is a uh, uh, if you look at the old Icelandic portraits of ladies uh, in the national costume from uh, 1900s early 1900s that was our inspiration the way that they were sitting and I used that as a guiding light for poses and stuff like that because there is something about Iceland um, and I've often spoken about it Iceland is unique and I want you to elaborate on it <laughs> um, I've used uh, the textures here is quite extraordinary in the landscape. Absolutely. And your vision, it can reach so far because there's nothing in the front that kind of takes the view away from that mountain because we don't have that many trees. You really don't have any trees. <laughs> few. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, there are a few little like groves. I'm not even going to say forests. Like yeah. they're groves. Like there's not much tree. Well, here. the joke you here in Iceland is the fact that uh, if you get lost in the woods, just stand up. <laughs> yeah, because the, the, the woods are not that big. No. Yeah. Um, so the texture is so amazing because you can, when the... When the snow comes and everything changes and you start just noticing the textures in different snow, mm -hmm. new fallen snow, it's like feathers, you know, a crystallized snow is, you know, frostbites and, and, and snow that's been hidden by wind is different. And there's all these beautiful little textures just within snow that I've actually then transformed into textiles. Well, I mean, a question that I've asked a number of people, like, and you're a little bit even more towards it, which is like you spent a large amount of time outside of Iceland. Yes. So that's the quite My interest is what sort of brought you back? Uh, first of all, my son brought me back. Uh, he's born. Uh, I moved away from New York because I wanted my child to be born and raised in Iceland. Okay. Because there is something about when you actually are not here, there is this beautiful way of growing up in Iceland. You know, um, the Aurora Borealis, uh, playing outside in the snow, um, the 24 hours of daylight when your mother can't get you inside. The nine months of complete darkness. Well, it's not complete <laughs> darkness. It's by six minutes every day, it gets dark. And then slowly the day gets longer. 
the volcano eruptions, the lava, the hot springs. It is a fascinating place for a child growing up. It's a fascinating place for an adult to be. <laughs> so I, this kind of thing has kind of, I took with me from Iceland into um, the big cities where I worked in. And they are unique. And the fact that you can be on a glacier in an, two hours and have an afternoon tea and then walk back, and it's, it's kind of extraordinary to actually realize the nature you have outside this city, which is Reykjavik. And that's why I think we have all these tours today that just discovered it. We didn't have that 20 years ago. I've heard that, yeah, and I'm quite didn't. surprised to hear that. Well, I think it's the fact that um, when people have traveled to all the major cities and they all start looking the same, you want to see some specialty towards each country. And, for instance, I made a point of traveling to Alaska, of going to uh, Greenland, Faroe Islands, Finland, only because those places are so unique. And trust me, I've traveled extensively for my work, but I wanted to see those little places that nobody wants to go to. Because, um, like I said, Greenland just took my breath away. Just to be clear, almost everybody I know wants to go to the Faroe Islands, though. I honestly have to tell you, the first experience I've ever had, I was uh, I drove away to the island that's the furthest up north, and it was not sunny, it was kind of cloudy, and the sun was coming out, and I stood in front of a church, and I felt like I was in the end of the earth. You kind of are. Yeah, <laughs> and it... It was a great feeling. I was like, now I understand all the movies. <laughs> sure. And all the fairy tales and everything. And in Iceland, there is a lot of, we, we grew up with fairy tales and elves and sagas. sagas and folklore stories. And it kind of has a different view on how uh, imagination for a child can you know, uh, it, it develops in a different way. And that's why I think there are so many artists that actually come from Iceland because of this. I've heard about this. The, the, somebody like, gave me statistics, but like, I'm, I'm going to butcher it. But it's like, you know, basically like everybody does something creative, whether yes. it's write, music, mm -hmm. visual arts, whatever. Everybody does something creative. And on my side of it is like, well, sure, you have lots of time. And you need to be creative, like there, because like there's not necessarily things available or offered, and you know, because you, you're reasonably isolated, and there's a certain amount of time of the year where it's very dark and potentially depressing. And so, I I totally understand why the need slash desire to be creative is sort of a core to this community. Oh, I I have a feeling you're getting this wrong. Oh, okay. Yeah. Please tell me if I'm getting Listen, it wrong. Listen, uh, all the gyms are so crowded in the winter time. The gyms. The gyms are so crowded. People are so busy and they are... Uh, I don't uh, think I've even seen a gym. 
Oh my God, there are so many around the Reykjavik. Are there? Yeah, and those are the times that they're full and people are going, uh, walking on skis and snowmobiling and and skiing. It's it, it, winter time is extremely busy here. Okay, no. I might have, yeah, it's my stupid foreigner perspective. <laughs> I totally understand that. I make many of these yeah. assumptions. Uh, uh, I think people do that. Uh, uh, for instance, I'm never as busy as in the wintertime. Really? Yeah. However, this winter, this February became something else because of the weather. And that I have not experienced before. The weather being worse, the weather being better. Well, uh, in 2019, we had um, an alert for wind. The wind was so fierce. We called it the red warning when the wind is so fierce that people are actually told to be inside. That's pretty bad. That's pretty bad. And a yellow warning means that, yeah, there's a storm, a bad storm. And in some places, it's really bad. For the month of February, for 28 days... We had 12 yellow warnings and four red ones. Uh, sounds above average to me. It, it, this, was, this was something else. I mean, I understand six yellow warnings or, you know, during a month, but 12? This was like, I'm sorry, every other day. It's, it, I would imagine that even the sound of the wind would also become like its own thing as well. Oh, my, I live by the ocean, and sometimes when the wind direction was not in my favor, it was like, oh my God, I'm not going to sleep tonight. Yeah, sure. <laughs> and I, I've not experienced this before. This was new, and the st there was hardly ever a blue sky. Yeah, I, I believe that. Yeah, and uh, um, this was something different. Um, I, I understand, you know, storms and things, but four red warnings in one month when we had the first one in 2019, th this was something else. And the, I, 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 I have no, I'm not a, a, um, an expert in this matter, but there's something about the fact that Greenland is melting fast. And all the fresh water is actually accumulating below the point of Greenland. And you can, I've seen photos where there actually, there's this cool spot below in the ocean. Right. And it's kind of affecting the, the circulation of the ocean. Yes. So. Um, As global warming has global predicted. Global warning, yeah. So uh, I have a feeling that something is happening here in, for the weather. And the fact that now we're experiencing real summer weather in May and not, it's kind of interesting and scary at the same time. Yeah, the weather's been lovely for May. <laughs> yeah, this is kind of July weather. Is it? Okay. Yes. Okay, so I, I'm, I'm honored to have had the, the better weather. <laughs> but that, okay, but so... You're saying that it's not as sort of like depressing no. and sad and everything that, Far that people from it. okay because like again stupid foreigner ideas. Far from it. Uh, this is where all the uh, theaters are happening. They all go on holiday, uh, summer vacation, and the schools are so busy. And there's so much go activity going on here in the winter time that you kind of you don't really feel. 
you feel maybe the darkness in January and I have to admit the month of February was horrendous but you could see the daylight you knew there were good times ahead and that is what kept you going because immediately March 1st and you can see it's the days are getting longer so that's good uh, um, but for me there's January and February are kind of the worst month because of the constant darkness not because people aren't busy interesting all yeah. right when, okay so you chose to come back to Iceland now from a business perspective so like you have your sort of creative side you do workshops you've taught at one point you have your clothing lines how does that all sort of come together and does, does it are you doing lots of international exhibitions sales etc or is it more local like basically how does how do you for lack of a better word like how do you pull off making a living through all of these different varieties of different things that you do well um my store is one thing physical uh, store let's just physical store right. where i produce and design and produce i only sell here only so only wait so you don't even have an online shop Nobody no i can, don't my god how, how how do you exist these days well it's amazing that people actually find me that is i am probably one of the strange person but it has something to do with touch i would agree with that having walked through your studio yeah like, it has to do with touch yeah i would not have like been as convinced that something is quite as like soft or supple or whatever without like from a picture yeah well um I'm finishing my master's in ethnology and I'm writing about sensory, you know, to the body and towards clothing. And one of the thing is that uh, the touch, which is our most kind of sophisticated sense, you know, we feel we being touched and we feel when we're, uh, it's a, a, a touch that's hurtful. And when you put on a piece of clothing, you immediately sense it on on your skin and it's either a beautiful touch in the the garment kind of you know unfolds around your body and you feel secure and it's a nice touch i wish you all could see this she's doing lots of beautiful gestures <laughs> while she's talking it's really great but go on and online you're only reading words and seeing photos and seeing photos and i don't translate. know how many times i've heard that people saying oh it didn't feel the same way as lo it looked in the photograph i i refuse to buy things online like wait, i'm <laughs> maybe i'm just old this way but like i will go to a store find something i like touch it feel it put it on all that then figure out the size and the color and then order it online there you go but i but i won't order online without having touched or experienced this particular thing and i, I get that i get people that come to my stores foreigners wherever and i ship all over america and europe because people have been to my store they know the feeling they know their sizes and then they order and I get emails like, can you send me photos of your new collection? Can you? 
And it becomes very personal, much more personal than just ordering online because I help them. It's, it may be a few days of corresponding back and forth and the customer feels like he's getting what he wants to buy instead of just seeing it in a picture, not knowing, paying a large amount of money for it and then shipping it back. So it's it's saving a lot of time for everybody. Okay, but let's take this back a step. So when you talk about your fashion line, like in my mind, again, stupid outsider perspective, I picture fashion designers making a run of X amount of the the, the clothes and things like this. Sounds to me like you make less slash bespoke amounts of whatever you make. You don't seem to do large quantities I of refuse stuff. to make large quantities. Okay. I do very few and sometimes three per color. Wait, I'm sorry, say that? So, three per color. Three, like so literally like three per sweaters, color. let's In say. In one color. In a color. Okay, wow. Okay. Are you, are you like signing these like one Almost. of three? <laughs> And like little first comes, first gets. Wow. Okay. So, that, I mean, these are like little art pieces almost, yes. like editioned art pieces yes. that you can wear. Yes. And you, um, and that's why I put a lot of quality into them because they are um, expensive. But you're I, not. I can attest to that. They are, they're certainly not cheap. <laughs> they are, um, but the beauty of it is, is that. I still get women in the store saying, I bought a sweater 10 years ago and I still wear it. Sure, craftsmanship. Craftsmanship counts. And that is what we all need to be aware of today. And I've only used natural fibers in my product for the last 20 years. That's interesting because some people say that the synthetics are better technically for longevity and this kind of stuff absolutely i do disagree with that great i love it so why um i used to be the biggest cashmere uh, producer in america for a long time so when my wife loves cashmere uh, so um when you get to know the story of cashmere and what it does and the quality of cashmere and uh, where you buy it from and where it's spun and all of it why would I want to get a product that you've put into the cashmere? Why not getting the real product? Then it's real cashmere. Okay, wait, I have a question. You're a fashion designer. You use cashmere. I can't wear cashmere. It's uh, and, too hot for me. Uh, I can understand that. Yeah, okay. So is that reasonably normal that some that people have that reaction? <laughs> like, well, natural fibers tend to work with your uh, body heat. Yeah. With the, I put it on within five minutes. I'm sweating. Take, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I think that's the beauty of natural fiber. It's amazing. Yeah. I'm incredibly warm, but unfortunately, a lot of times cashmere is a bit more fashionable. So like I'm going out to dinner and I don't need to be sweating while I'm going out to but dinner. But people have to realize that cashmere is just like everything else. There's an A product, a, a, a quality, B quality, and C quality. Not all the cashmere product is the best product in the world. Oh, yeah. It, we know that. Yeah. yeah. So, um, and the same thing with wool. Iceland is known for its wool. 
But Icelandic wool is not considered the best quality in the world. It's a little scratchy because the micro hair of, of the Icelandic wool is, is, is coarse, whereas super fine merino wool is then therefore much softer. I didn't say it was known as a soft wool <laughs> no, it or isn't. as a high quality. I said it's known. <laughs> like there is a distinct Icelandic wool. That and, I can't and, and wear, the, and the the weave as well, yeah, yeah, sort of yeah. that that the large the Icelandic knot. pattern. Is, yes. Yeah. Yeah. I'll tell you the story behind the uh, Icelandic pattern. Well, okay, I, but I also want to be clear, like, and I'm sure people will look at photos of your work. Like, you do not do that. <laughs> like, you no. do the Icelandic pattern, the Icelandic wool. Like, no. your your clothing is incredibly like I, I the words I would use would be elegant and timeless. Thank you. Those would be those would be my words because like. Quite honestly, it looks like anybody from like Jackie O all the way up to any contemporary person could be wearing these garments. Yeah. And I love that. I'm a big fan of that. I used to work for Banana Republic. Oh, nice. As a, as a personal <laughs> shopper. So, so like, so like, this is of my oeuvre. I'm, I'm all about this. <laughs> but the, you know, so like, it's not, you're not sort of leaning into the quote unquote sort of Icelandic style. You are very much like, antithesis of that in many ways i use iceland as inspiration for all the textures i do i can see that yes and that's my icelandic take okay uh i can't personally wear icelandic wool because it's too scratchy for me it's very scratchy yeah and um i want natural fiber on my body uh specifically living here and I believe that natural fiber kind of treat my body better and my body heat becomes different. And actually when I put on a jacket and the lining is synthetic, I have to take the jacket off because I start sweating because I'm not used to synthetics. Okay. I don't like, all my gym clothes are cotton. So yeah, like I love merino wool. Yeah, I can wear merino yeah, wool yeah. To, to all day, yeah, no problems. Yeah. But cashmere, phew, I'm just like buckets of sweat. It's horrible. <laughs> oh, but cashmere is such a fantastic product. It is. Yeah. I, I've, maybe I'm just getting, maybe what I'm thinking is the cashmere things I'm getting are too thick. I believe that. So go for a thinner version of it, a more and delicate more version. more loose knitted. Yeah, yeah. Generally, the ones I've purchased in the past or have been gifted have been very uh, thick. Th- thick and yeah. densely yeah. woven. No, 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 no. no. Uh, uh, my cashmere, I try to open the the. the yeah, let it knitting, breathe a little bit. Let it breathe, <laughs> and you find the the quality of the yarn much better. Well, okay, so but like so you're using things like cashmere though, but that's not Icelandic. Is there a, a wait? Maybe yeah, there is. Is there Icelandic cashmere? No, there isn't. Okay, I didn't uh, want to make assumptions. Most of the uh, uh, cashmere, what we call gray goods, where the ori- where it's originated from, comes from um, the Himalayas yeah. and Pakistan, uh, India, Pakistan, India. And a lot of it comes down from uh, Mongolia and all go ga- goes down to uh, a city in um, China, middle China, called Ningxia. And I've been I there. I no idea. Okay. Uh, I've been to the Gobi Desert and been to Ningxia. That sounds like you, Well, the, the process of making cashmere, it, it's not just like you spin it and it's being sent. 
you need to clean it. You need to uh, wash it. You need to clean it. You need. There's a lot of factories that just clean it before a knitting mill actually buys the grace goods before it's knitted. Hmm. And that, to me, is, is people. M- most people don't know about that. And it's being shipped to great mills around the world, and then. The mill uses their own technique and their own washing and their own drying and their. It's very. Uh, uh, it's it's yeah. It's a textile engineering down every step of the way, and therefore cashmere is so expensive because it has gone through so many factories on the way, in the process of making it before. A designer buys the yarn in order to create the cloth. Ah, the snobbery we all have. <laughs> we all do it. We want to. We want to work with the nicest materials, and unfortunately, they are oftentimes the most expensive materials. But I like cashmere only because it kind of keeps my body. Though I, I choose the looseness of of the cashmere sweater I'm wearing. Or not, because I know it's going to be warm today, so I don't wear a thick one. And the same thing with the wool. And I wear natural fibers all year long, only. And you're probably better for it. Thank you. But I have less of them, because they... Last a long time. Last longer. And I don't really wash my wool that much. I put it out in this crazy wind... (laughs) we have here in Iceland and it kind of cleans it for me now okay you brought up sort of like what I would call like the supply chain so like the last couple years with all the COVID stuff and all the Suez Canal and all, all the you know supply chain stuff have there been any issues that have affected you as far as like getting resources to be able to create no. your works really no Boy, you're lucky. <laughs> well, first of all, I produce that little. It's true. You only I make three that of a color. Yeah. So I don't <laughs> ship things. Crazy. Yeah. I don't ship. I, I send a cargo airplane. I don't produce three per style per color. It's three per color. I may produce four, five colors. Wait, okay, you're blowing my mind for a second here. Wait, <laughs> three per color. So like under, an, um, you know, from what I'm hearing, that means small, medium, large. large. That's three. That's three. That's it. That's all you do. In one color, yes. Oh my gosh. Okay, now I understand your price is so much more. Yeah, <laughs> that's insane. You literally just make basically one sweater in one color in three sizes. No, I make one sweater. In four colors, sometimes in three five. sizes. In three, uh, not particularly in light colors because I know what sells in my store. Ah. I know that I sell more black than orange. Uh, yeah. Yeah. But there are a lot of people that just don't yeah. like orange. So I produce orange color in three. Sure. Yeah, I produce a little bit more black because I know I can sell that more. Sure. And the customer wants that. Light colors, I only produce three. And the customer is 
that's what they want. That's what they come to my store for because they know they're not going to meet 20 other people in the same party. No, definitely not. Like, I mean, I'm, I'm shocked quite honestly like to the to the extent of which like you are so focused on craftsmanship quality almost even like i could throw the word exclusivity of products thank as well you. thank you like that uh, in some ways i'm like i kind of want to buy something for my wife just to be able to say like oh we have one of these pieces but but on the other hand i'm like i can't afford that but, like, but it, it's it's very admirable quality to work like that and envious in many ways well let me put it to you but this how side. do you pull it off well i've been <laughs> working with the same factory for more than two decades okay so you've got a good relationship yes. slash yes, then yes, good yes, price yes, point yes, with the, these yes, these yes. Um, i believe that working with the same vendor is what actually gives me ahead of another designer because I know the product so well. I know what I can do, and every season I can pull them a little bit further, 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 further. Well, because a lot of designers will, for lack of a better, sort of chase the cheapest kind of thing. Like, you know, one year they'll be in Turkey, another year they'll be in no. Pakistan, another no. year in South Korea, whatever. Like, they, they go wherever the cheapest factories are that can produce their product. No. No. So, like, you've chosen one particular vendor, you call it. Because they can do a certain technique that I'm interested in. And it's kind of, I have this great story about the, the person who actually makes my product in Lithuania. Do tell, I love great stories. <laughs> Go ahead. Um, I was in Lithuania. Paris. Wait, Lithuania yeah, though? Lithuania. Okay, that's, everything seems to be pointing back to Lithuania, but go on. And I was in Paris and I saw a dress and I, I wasn't interested in the color of the dress or the style of the dress, but there was uh, a detail on the shoulder and I immediately saw it was handmade. And I saw the detail on the, on the shoulder of this dress. And I was like, who made that? All I wanted to know was who made it, because that detail was handmade. And a lot of my, my uh, product here, all the pattern that I put on top of it that are very sculptural are handmade. So I got the name of the factory and this is in 2002, and we are still working together. Mm. 20 years on, I've made a mistake, they've made a mistake, but I know that we are not perfect. But together, we created a story that has been lasting, and now all I have to do is to send her measurements, and she makes a perfect garment. And that is what a long relationship produces. And she knows me that I'm all into um, textures. So she can make exceptionally beautiful things that we work on together. And she loves making them because that gives her pleasure. Finally, she's getting to produce something that gives her pleasure because sometimes she needs to make what we call bread and butter garments in order to make a living As we all we need to do that all do yes but the fact is that i don't make extra product i make 
I, I want to sell this and I don't make extra, period. And whatever you see in the store and in, on the shelves, that's my entire stock. Those of you who can't see it, that's not a lot. <laughs> she has very, like in comparison to general retail stores, you have almost nothing. I, have, I know that, but that's the beauty of my product. I, I didn't, sorry if that came off in a negative way. <laughs> I, I meant it as like, you have very limited uh, editions. Uh, a friend of mine who works for a large fashion house in New York City came here. And he saw the whole thing and he said, don't change a thing. That makes you a rarity. It is. I mean, it's shockingly rare. Like, I'm still kind of surprised by all of this. Like, because... You just don't hear of people doing this anymore. Like, if, like every young fashion designer I know is always like, I want to expand and make bigger and go global and blah, blah. They all have these huge, great aspirations of being big and busy and, and making many, you know, thousands of stuff. Making it to the cover of Vogue's and being in Vogue and been there, done that. Now I just want to uh, enjoy it. And I do enjoy it because it actually gives me pleasure to come to work every day. And to me, that's the most important thing. Yeah. And I've, I've, I've also, this thing about giving back. I've given lectures, I don't know, in how many schools or workshops in how many schools around the world. And in the last years, uh, I would say since 2014, I think I've exhibited in like almost 20, I don't know, 20 museums. There is this thing of me that I've, um, I've enjoyed is making art with fabric or, yeah. And I'm specifically interested in string art. There's an entire genre of art that works yeah, in just yeah. textiles and string art. Like it's very, very well documented. And uh, um, I th that has given me kind of a new insight into who I am. And I think I'm always searching for something new and something better and something more meaningful and and an explanation. Like for instance, my master's degree has really just brought a new meaning into my life. I I'm reading great theorists and enjoying it and going, ah, now I understand. And now I understand why I've always yeah. <laughs> been doing this thing. And it's been it's been kind of a, a, a search, always searching a little bit longer and further and never giving up on that. And trust me, I mean, my press things are all here. My press books are all here. And I, I don't look into those. I look into my all my I'm extremely organized and I'm sorry to say that, but I have all my collections here that I produced in black folders they all look the same and it's kind of crazy and i okay my personal opinion i adore this it feels <laughs> so organized and methodical i like this is my like ocd like dream <laughs> I, I would love to have my life this organized nobody can see what this is but it's basically like a series of black bookshelves with a series of black binders mm, 
pub looks like journals and even like uh, magazine rack holders all black but each of them having their own little subtle textural differences like it's it's my little ocd dream but yeah go on <laughs> i love it uh, the thing is about this is that it has something to do with the fact that i am continuing building up the company so it becomes very um, valuable speaking of that interesting question that just that wait i'm up. gonna add a little Go bit ahead. yeah i own every single piece of everything i've ever made in the last 22 years in all colors in an archive which makes the company extremely valuable going forward after my time which is exactly what my question was going to be about, which is sort of what I what I refer to as sort of estate planning or sort of thinking about sort of the longevity of your name, reputation, quality, whatever, after you're unable to or unwilling to participate in it kind of thing. So like so you put an extensive amount of planning into this, it sounds like for well, a long extensive, time. Extensive. But I've always uh, um I've kind of been educated by masters in this area. And it's by doing it, I've actually set an example here in this country for it, which actually, um, I'm one of the co-founders of the Icelandic Fashion Council here in Iceland, and uh, one of the co-founders of the textile department here in the art school. And, I'm making a difference, and that's what I want. Not in the sense of making a difference, well, you're always in vogue or whatever. Making a difference in how to build up a fashion uh, industry here in Iceland. Well, that idea of the estate planning thing, like, I'll be honest, before I started doing this podcast, so like three years ago, I didn't understand. Like, it's not even that I didn't understand it. I was unaware of it. Like, I didn't even know it was a thing. But like now I've become obsessively aware that that basically we as creative people, not only do we need to be like holding on to some of examples of our products, but our journals, some you know, some important receipts, not every receipt, but some important receipts, you know, our sketchbooks, our everything, like never throw away or, or get rid of any of that stuff. Any because don't throw anything away. Right. Because like that's the way we will be known after we're gone. Yeah. You know, whatever documentation we continue to own, <laughs> you know, becomes the way people will study us yeah. in the future. Yeah. That never even dawned on me until like just the past three years. I've always been like this. I've always been very organized. But I think after working in New York, uh, uh, I kind of learned that keeping everything is important and only enhances your design process because you, you're working within a frame when you work for a big fashion house. And you can't wear from that frame. You have a lot of creativity within the frame. But like my own thing, I I have a frame that I work from. And I can always go to my frame and my books and my archive in order to keep the, that 
coming and and working with it and go ah yes i did that texture uh, maybe i can work from that that reminds me of something and therefore you have your own research on hand and the value that you have in an archive is so important for any company and um i think i don't know um i think most people consider me like crazy to be so organized and all of that i don't do see myself crazy i consider myself uh wanting to keep something together that is my company and my legacy here in iceland that i can actually give it to somebody and sell it and go here it is all of it uh, it's very valuable you have all the specs and all the engineering part and every because knitting is not something that you knitting is not something you learn in a school or you don't learn the techniques or the engineering part in school but by being at the factory that is really where you learn it by the 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 talks with the with the technicians and and going ah i'm going to do this ah, can you try this for me can you try that for me can you try this for me can you try that for me and all of a sudden after all these trials you go that's what i'm looking for but you save all the other trials because they can come in handy a little bit later I'm on your side. I am actually quite envious of your your organizational not only skills but sort of longevity of of consistency. You know, cuz like a lot of times people start it and then they stop it or they start and then they change it whatever, but like yours seems to be not only like thoughtfully planned out but like for a long time. Since I started my my first year uh um, um the book is the same black uh, as yeah for 22 years <laughs> yeah well black is actually oddly enough easy because they'll always produce it always you know like those other colors that they make like journals and whatever else like they'll go in and out of fashion you know the colors will and so they won't be available again so like black that will literally always be available but i still use my same uh, my same logo everything and i've been very consistent with my company but i think it has to do with uh, the fact that yeah i ordered a car a land rover in the year 2000 and it broke down in the field in my summer house in the year 2017 and that is a good good example of things for me 17 year car that's pretty good it's very good i buy a good one and i just i finish it and it's been a motto for a very very long time it's a very interesting thing cuz like i grew up my parents we we always had these long standing debates in our family my father believed he wanted to buy something once and buy it pay more than is maybe what he expected to pay buy it once and be done with that decision Thank he never you. has to worry about that again because Thank he you. bought a good quality thing mm-hmm. that lasts. My mother on the other hand would buy a really cheap something and then buy it 10 times every time it broke. No. <laughs> I'm like your dad. I am so like my dad. Yeah. I think it's funny because the couch in my house it was given to me by my friend at school in New York City. I moved it home, had it reupholstered twice. It's from 1968. 
the bones of it are probably great. Oh, it's a fantastic design yeah. by one of America's uh, great furniture designer. And I'm going, no, and I didn't know that at the time. And then when my friend came, he couldn't believe it that I still had the couch. And I have the photo of him when he sat in the couch realizing that it was still existing. Sure. Which, and, But there is something about this. There is something about buying good things and not to buy many. You just buy one, spend the money on it. And 15, 20 years later, well, if the urge comes up that you need to buy, my refrigerator is 24 years old and still working and looking good. I'm not changing it. Well, there, I mean, there's also the whole idea of like waste because you brought this up a number of times. You sort of touched on it with a couple little comments here and there of like basically not producing more than is necessary. I, I don't. I know, and that's what I'm hearing. Yeah, yeah. And a lot of fashion designers, I mean, like, look at fucking, like, what, Sara, H&M, and all that. I mean, they freaking burn things. They throw things in landfills that don't sell. So, like, they're ridiculously excessive in not only what they produce and that it's poorly produced, but then they also, like, they make too much of it and becomes its own little ecological disaster in many ways. Well, for me, it's it's... When I hear stories like this, I go, there's not a lot of communication between production and sales. Yeah. That's all I hear. Uh, if you produce uh, 20,000 white short sleeve t-shirts for men and you only sold 10, why wouldn't you make 10 next time? Agreed. I all I hear is this uh, miscommunication, uh, and I uh, my first uh, advice would be have a meeting with each other and figure it out because you save the planet a lot of things, and including money. So what if you sold out? Yeah. It's it's such a vicious cycle. Don't get me wrong. I shop at Zara too, but I mean, you know, for for junky things. That's what I mean. I fully yeah. am aware that that's what I'm yeah. going there for. Yeah, I don't shop at Zara, and I don't shop in H and M. I I don't shop at H and M. They don't make my size. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah. I think I'm like I I follow my own motto. I I buy things and I wear them, and you know, I take care of them, and I actually do one thing for my customer. I fix things in the store. I'll tell you, when I worked at Banana Republic, yeah. the it was funny. I, I started working there, and they had a policy at the time. Mm -hmm. so this is late 90s. They had a policy at the time that any garment with the Banana Republic label in it, they would f repair or replace forever. Mm -hmm. And I loved that. And I was happy to work for them because mm -hmm. they literally stood behind their garments yeah. for the life of the garment. Mm -hmm. And I, when I say that, like, I know people that came in with a jacket they bought 20 years ago. And they fixed it. And they would fix it or replace it. But they would, generally they would fix it. And then at a certain point while I was working there, they changed that policy. Yeah. And I stopped working for them. Because I could, because th yeah. if they didn't believe in their product, I didn't believe in their product. And I find it amazing uh, um, because uh, the customer loves it. I don't charge a lot for it. I think it's kind of a part of uh, the the longevity of the garment itself for the owner. Sure. And um, 
I actually think by doing it, you're saving the planet on one piece. And that's what we all have to do. It's just that one piece that we're using and fixing. And, and it, it starts with us. It doesn't start with screaming in the papers or whatever. It starts with us. Every single person threw out one less article of clothing. That's like billions of articles of clothing. Yeah. Like it's, yeah, I know. <sighs> Pipe dreams, unfortunately, at this point. Well, I, I've been looking at this and reading a lot about it. And waste is something, but you can't, you can't just, like I said, it starts with you taking care of it yourself. Right. You can't convince somebody no, else to no. do this, but you choose to do it, and then other people notice you doing yeah. it, and it influences yeah. them. It, it's like it's a, you know, like you can't tell somebody lead a horse to water; you can't make them drink. But in the 1950s, they were making, for instance, gabardine, which is a beautiful quality, and it has a longevity beyond. You don't find gabardine anymore. I am totally blanking in my mind what gabardine yeah, is. Yeah, it's okay. Uh, uh, but I know it, but I can't picture it. Um, it's, a, it's a specially woven uh, wool or cotton sometimes. Uh, the weave of... Uh, um, anyway, I, I don't know how to explain it to you. Is it like a herringbone? No. no. Uh, gabardine has this diagonal uh, structure in it. Oh yeah. Okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah uh, in wool coats and and men's coat and gabardine yes. was. Uh, why don't they make fabrics like that today? Because that is what we should be making. Because it costs too much. I'm not sure. I think in it the was cheap. Short in, run, it costs too much. I think people got tired of it because. The word fashion, which is not, it's a concept, basically, the word fashion is a concept. It, it ran out of fashion, and they did something with the machines, and the machines are not available. Hmm. And um, I think, for me, I, I want to bring back these kind of old traditional weaving things, because maybe then we can start getting the fabrics that are so important to us. Um, and I, I'm, I'm not going to say anything bad about waste or whatever because I'm too small in order to do that. But I believe that if we find a solution and educate people in wastefulness, then because every single person in the world has to put on clothing every single day, and that's a lot of clothing. And like you said, if we all saved one piece and finished it, you know, the tipping point of a garment is so, we need to know what is the tipping point of a garment. Do we throw it out now or do I fix it? You know, if we all expanded our tipping point a little bit and had it fixed or something. I'll tell you, that, that's something you don't hear a lot about these days, even repairing. It, it it has to come back because we can't keep on doing this. I mean, repairing your TV, your phone, your computer, whatever. Like when these things stop working, people just throw them out. That's we've a shame. I know. We've become such a, I don't even know what the word for it is. What just like 
wasteful society yeah. like you know throw away society like you know so you use it once until it sort of breaks and you throw it away you don't people don't repair things anymore i was wearing these great shoes that i had fixed uh last night i uh, i went had to, i was invited to a party and the shoes i bought in 1998 some of my favorite shoes i bought in 1991 there I still you go them. yeah my wife hates them but i love them but i think if you actually start fixing things like this yeah. and i haven't i'm not telling you how many people complimented on my shoes and i had to tell them well sorry they're from 1998 can't buy them today <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you the the best things i own are the things that i put more a little bit more than i wanted was yeah. comfortable spending on them generally oftentimes they're like handmade or something like this like i'm thinking very clearly of these these shoes that i bought in new york sidewalk do you know the oh, brand? Oh, yes. Love their stuff. And they're magnificent. Yes. Like they are incredibly well-crafted, super comfortable, extremely expensive, but they will last me decades. I love them. I usually tell a story of my coat. I was in New York City and I bought a coat and it literally cost me more than an arm. Half the shoulder came off. And I, I think I had rice for uh, lunch for a month. I still wear it. Yeah, mine was like a birthday, Christmas, and a third there holiday gift all wrapped yes, into yes. one just to get a pair of boots from yes, Sidewalk. Yes. And this is what I think we're missing today. Agreed. It's so, oh, just go buy it. It doesn't matter. That's the attitude we need to change. We just buy it because it doesn't matter. That's not good. That we need to change this. That's the most important thing. It's people's mind. Agreed. Now I feel bad I didn't wear my boots. I have them in my hotel room. I should have worn them. I mean, I come Only and, for I, me. <laughs> I come and talk to a, a fashionista. I should, really should be wearing my fashion boots, but whatever. Uh, I'm, I, I can't consider myself a fashionista. I wear such simple uniform clothing every single day. You and Steve Jobs. Uh, well, it's, uh, I, I keep on telling, uh, my uniform came out of practicality. I love a uniform in many ideas. Yeah. Like my wife constantly makes fun of me because I, I eat the same breakfast and lunch every day. Yeah. I vary my dinner so, yeah. sometimes, but breakfast and lunch, and she keeps like, why don't you eat something different? And I'm like, because I don't want to have to think about it. Yeah. There you go. Like, I just want to be have the sustenance of something that I like, but I don't want to put any extra thought into it. Uh, I used to wear white clothing all the time in, in New York City, and, and now I wear only black. And like I said, out of practicality, because my son, I had to put the wheelchair in the car every day. And, and white clothing yeah. don't work for a wheelchair, you know? Uh, so I'm sorry, um, uh, wearing black was just easy and it had to be easy clothing and easy thing, but good quality. That I had to Natural have. Natural fibers. Natural fibers and good quality. And black was the thing I did. And yeah. Agreed. And yeah. me and my son had a happy life together. <laughs> My mentors in clothing, in my personal life, my son is my mentor. He's taught me more than I've been able to teach him. But in my professional life, I had amazing people as my mentors. I, I was the first 
Icelandic student to enter Parsons School of Design in New York City. And the first one to graduate. And it was for me, I learned how to actually work and during the, with the clothing and the pattern making. And, and it was so inspirational for me. Well, hold on, give us a time period on this Parsons. Um, I started in Paris. My, my first year in, uh, in Parsons was Parsons in Paris in 1982. And then I went to New York City in 1983 and graduated in 1986 and with honors. Uh, and when I came to New York City, um, I was put out uh, to work on Fashion Avenue two months after I arrived because people realized I could knit. And I could knit without watching. And I was, and all my project uh, at school became knitted. I hand knitted all my projects and easily worked on them second year, sophomore year, and final year, and all knitted. And I got a job uh, after my third year uh, in school because I knew how to knit. And I got a job straight out of school. Working for who? I started working for uh, uh, a label called Carmelo Pomodoro. I was waiting for you to say something like Ralph Lauren or Vivian Westwood or something like that. Well, uh, then I worked uh, uh, to work for uh, uh, Ralph Lauren. See, I knew that was coming. And ended up working for Calvin Klein for six years. Somehow I just knew all this. Okay, go on. Yes. And Calvin, wow, what he taught me was amazing. I was there during some fantastic time for Calvin. Uh, yeah, you're talking late 80s at this point. Yeah. Like that's that's uh, prime um, Calvin Klein. 1989, uh, we were doing CK Sport with Kate Kate Moss and uh, Marky Mark and the underwear and... That's my era. <laughs> that's my, like, that's, that's my advertising era. Like, if there's any sort of iconic thing, I always feel like I look like a Gap ad from the late 80s. Yeah, yeah. Like, that's my aesthetic. I was in New York when the gap started. Oh my God. But Calvin, he knew precisely what was needed to make one jacket. He was in all of fittings and we would spend hours on going through colors and he was so hands on. And he knew the business so very well. And he had an amazing archive I could walk into. And uh, like I said, I, I learned from the best. And he, for some odd reason, he totally loved my sweater. So all, all of a sudden, I was just, I had many divisions that I was doing all the knitwear f for. And it started out with one cable sweater that I had produced in, in a knitting factory I found in Brooklyn. And all of a sudden, he was like, how did you do that? And all of a sudden, there was like these doors that opened. And I was, I was producing like there was no tomorrow for CK Sport, for men's, for collection. Um, yeah, it was absolutely crazy times. But man, was it fun. I was designing, I think, 16 collections a year and with the help and producing and 
It was, yeah, I learned about fittings on everything and you were involved in everything and you met amazingly talented people that were working in the studio. Well, and that's one thing that a lot of us in the creative industries don't really think. We think that being a creative person is a very much solo project. It isn't. It is not. It is. It's a team of four or five people that actually are constantly looking at colors and changing colors and working colors and and designing things and redesigning and redesigning again and going into fittings and working it in fittings and it changes in fittings and changes in fabrics and there's constant process going on. I learned about fashion shows and what they meant and met amazing models and Wow, it was it was a time I was educated. I was really truly educated on good qualities on everything and I consider myself lucky and he was an amazing mentor. I would have to say you are very lucky, quite honestly, because like I did lots of those kinds of internships and and yeah. mentoring projects and all I got out of them was basically learning what I don't want to do. Yeah. <laughs> Now, which is worthwhile. Yeah. But I did not have that great sort of mentoring experience. I didn't have that thing of like, that's the thing I want to do. Yeah. I got a lot of what a knowledge of like, oh shit, I want no part of this as my career. I actually, uh, my, a lot of people have asked, how did you do that? How, how, how was it so possible for you? And it was, first of all, I was very naive. I didn't Oddly know. Yeah, I, I was very naive trade. and didn't do corporate business. But I could knit like there was no tomorrow and I could produce things and craftsmanship. The craftsmanships, that was it. And that's what they saw. And I expanded the knitwear divisions triple, quadruple. At that time, Calvin Klein was known for his sweaters. Thank you. I know his sweaters from that era. I had one of his sweaters from that era that lasted me like 10 years, 15 years. Yeah, like I, I was, loved it. Uh, and the, I was, that, that was it. It was my craft. It, it was the craft that got me through this. And I kept on producing new things. And I found new yarns, whether it was in Peru or Japan, whatever, wherever I could find new things that had texture. Because that is what I was about coming from Iceland. And the color sense, I have books here from Calvin with all my laptops, which is amazing. And the color sense that we did was absolutely stunning. And like I said, I then um, um, met some great people there. And uh, I was going to go back to New York and work after uh, I became pregnant. But I, I didn't know that my son was so sick when he was born. So... I couldn't go back and I stayed here in Iceland and then after nine months I took one good look at my husband and said dear I'm either going to drive you crazy or I I, I need to go back to work (laughs) so um, I decided to go back to work and I called up a friend of mine from Calvin and uh, he was working in Italy And I said, do you know of any uh, knitwear designer that's needed? And he goes, yeah, uh, my company needs one. Why don't you come on over? And this is in um, 
This is in December 1995. And I got on a plane, went to Italy and to Florence and sat down with a, a very handsome man, uh, beautiful looking, and said, and we spoke and he goes, when, when can you start? And I said, February. And that's when I started, February 1996. And almost five and a half years later, I had, wow, uh, quadruple, yeah, I don't even know how many, five times, six times, the knitwear production. I worked in this often, and I said, Dear Tom, I cannot fly back and forth anymore. And that was Tom Ford. <laughs> oh my gosh. I'm going back to my earlier statement of why have I never heard of you before? <laughs> I've, I've been... I participated in making the most wanted outfits in the world. Indeed. I would love to have a Tom Ford. Anything. Uh, Yeah, and I don't think we realized, the design team, what we were making. Well, and that's one of those things that a lot of times in any creative field, so I don't care if it's like just visual arts or the, the fashion industry, whatever it is, a lot of times we don't know how important or impactful whatever it is we're making is yeah. at the time we yeah. make yeah. it. And we, it I, often, we had no idea. Yeah, yeah, and it takes hindsight and time and, and, and uh, cultural sort of uh, sort of the, the, the culture embracing something over time before we realize that the impact of many different things that we have. Like me as a teacher, I always wonder like whether or not, or even this podcast, like it's not like, it's not going to change somebody's life tomorrow, but it might change somebody's life in a decade. Yeah. Yeah. Those men changed my life. That's for sure. And my fashion experience with these amazing companies and the fact that we got to build up so much stuff both for Calvin and and for Tom it, it I consider myself lucky to be in the right place at the right time but the same thing it was my knowledge on the craft that made me do this and I had this amazing in a relationship with a factory that I kept on coming back to and we needed these extraordinary things that yeah um, and I think um, the um, the owner of Gucci ended up buying that knitting factory because it it, it was something else it, it, it really we created something special she spoke Italian and I spoke half Italian Icelandic English and together just sitting on the knitting floor was so wonderful to actually be able to sit there and create something. And if I asked her for something out of this world, and she goes, yeah, uh, yeah, va bene, va bene. And next time I came, she had knitted something, and I was just like, wow, how did you do that? And I think being working with the people that actually count the people that actually create the cloths and the people that actually create the 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 clothing we sometimes forget those but those are such an important people and i'm sorry i sometimes i consider myself lucky to be a part of underwear and home collections and for both 
people that I worked for that I consider myself, I got to know so much. I learned so much from them. I'm very envious. <laughs> well, I think everybody has something in their life that we are all envious of. <laughs> I mean, the, the the time period, the people that you had the, the ability, to, the opportunities to work with is quite astonishing, quite really. Like, yeah. I actually pulled out one of my Gucci jackets the other day. Wait, you did, so you wait, wait, you worked for with with Tom Ford while he was a Gucci is what you're saying. That's all. Okay. Uh, that he was the yeah, he was the person. This is before Yves Saint Laurent. This is before yeah. Just I'm just making that clarification. Yeah. Because so, I'm like <laughs> Tom Ford is sort of his own thing now. Yeah, well, it was kind of obvious when Tom left and he was starting his own perfume. You knew there was clothing line coming. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, you just knew it. Uh, yeah, I knew it. I, I, it wasn't written, but you just kind of knew it. Sure. And he is brilliant at seeing an object. I don't care if it's shoe, belt, back, jacket, pant, dress. He is brilliant at visualizing a beautiful object. Agreed. And he took it further into his film. And I, I, I take my hat off for him because that was beautiful. Every frame was beautiful. And this is what I mean by you, I worked for companies that were leading the fashion across the Atlantic. We didn't follow anybody. We didn't take things for granted. You had to start something that you designed, not somebody that had designed it for you or you couldn't steal it, you couldn't, because that was not fashion. You had to do your research and figure it all out. And I learned that from these people. And oh my God, to be able to work with these fabrics and work with these mills and seeing things you just went oh my god i was yeah and i've actually had goosebumps over a fashion show because it was so beautiful and i consider a fashion show almost like a a, a silent movie in the way the models walk the textures the silhouettes the hair the makeup the lighting it's a silent movie and when it's beautiful it's breathtaking and should take your breath away because there's a craft in there that's there's like yeah it's amazing to see i'm i'm sort of speechless so yeah thank you very much thank you for coming to iceland To wrap this up, I'd like to thank you for listening all the way to the end of the conversation. We would appreciate it if you would share the podcast with your friends, family, co-workers, studio mates, or anybody with an interest in arts and creative endeavors. The building and strengthening of the arts and creative community is at the core of our mission for this podcast. They can listen and subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We are produced by 5014. The audio was edited by Cush Audio Services, and the music was created by Pete Bybee.
The Wise Fool Art Podcast is supported in part by an EEA grant from Iceland, Liechtenstein, and Norway in an effort to work together for a green, competitive, and inclusive Europe. We would also like to thank our partners Hunt Kastner in Prague, Czech Republic, and Kunst Centrene i Norge in Norway. Links to EEA grants and our partner organizations are available in the show notes or on our website, wisefoolpod.com.